Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi guys, welcome back to Medicus. My name is Rasa and today I am sitting down with Dr. Lamenta Conway, who is a wonderful physician and also founder of the I Am Evil Foundation. And so Dr. Conway, can you tell us a little bit more about your journey to medicine? What first got you interested in medicine? What led you to both internal medicine and pediatrics as specialties? And how you landed at your current position? Okay, that can keep us going for about an hour. (laughs) (laughs) So I always say that you cannot be what you cannot see. So I consider myself very blessed. Sometimes I think it's miraculous that I'm even in this space able to talk to you today because my journey was very convoluted with lots of twists and turns. And I'm very thankful to be able to be here. As a kid, um, I grew up in the Inglewood community of Chicago. And my story is I used to watch medicine basically from television. My mentor, my only mentor, was a white man by the name of Dr. Marcus Welby. That was my mentor. He was on television. I like to pretend like it was during the uh, just the color television, but <laughs> I, I caught a couple of black and white episodes as well. And I remember looking at him and thinking, and I don't know why, I feel like sometimes these gifts and these desires are just placed in your heart. It's a mm-hmm. calling, if you will. And I saw it and it immediately connected with me. And I even remember uh, some of my family members saying, sweetie, you're smart. You could be a nurse. I was like, no, I'm going to be a doctor. (laughs) I I love it. I was like five or six. I'm like, why you keep telling me that? Don't try to reroute me. I'm going to be a doctor. Because at the time, the only, I think, Black figures we saw in medicine were people like the legendary Diane Carroll, who's like an icon in the Black community. Like her first uh, sitcom or first uh, show was called Julia. Mm -hmm. And he was a black nurse. And it was the only time that we saw someone that was a professional and black on television. So we hadn't seen a black doctor. And so I just connected with this person that somehow I thought I could do that. And when I say you cannot be what you cannot see, I think about how the fact that I personally didn't even have a doctor. I never went to a doctor. The first memory that I have of actually going to a doctor for medical care was when I was at 16 years old. I can remember the diagnosis. I can remember what was wrong and I can remember the treatment. And I also remember that was when my mother told me, she's like, sweetie, we can go to the doctor now because we have insurance. Mm -hmm. And she was so excited about that. And that's my earliest memory. I remember really struggling in high school, trying to feel comfortable and confident about uh, this journey. But I still maintain in my heart and my mind that I would you know, go to medical school mm-hmm. at some point and become a doctor. Went to college and everything just turned around. And when I say turned around, I didn't see a pathway to medicine. I was really struggling in basic things you know, physics, uh, which I didn't take to later, uh, chemistry. It was really hard. And I began to feel very inadequate and very stupid. And I was like, I can't do this. This, Mm -hmm. you know, apparently this wasn't for me. And 
in my experience, I realized that perhaps after actually failing a class and having to take it over, it was a strange aha moment when I realized, wow, I could learn this. I just didn't A, have a good teacher and B, I needed more time. And it was in that moment that I realized it's not that I can't do it. I need to expand my opportunity. I need to try it again. And when I did that, Rasa, everything changed. I began to realize I could do it. There were a couple of other things that I remember, like one moment where I remember standing at the board back in the day when they used to post your grades out on the wall. They would never do that. That's as bad as like a HIPAA violation now. (laughs) I remember the scores and your name would be posted on the wall. Yes, exactly. And I remember walking up there and I never forget, I heard these two white girls that were talking. What did you get? I got an A. What did you get? I got an A too. And my heart was just sinking. Mm -hmm. They weren't talking to me. They were talking to one another. And then I heard them say, yeah, I studied a lot. I studied like six hours. Did you? Yeah, me and such and so, we studied together and Mm -hmm. we studied all weekend. And it was a second aha moment because I didn't know that there was that much of a cost associated with being successful. Mm -hmm. Didn't know how to study, hadn't been mentored that way, didn't understand what I needed to do. Second aha moment. I said, my God, they didn't just read the, you know, read the book and answer a couple of questions. They actually read the book several times and dissected it. I didn't understand until that moment that I didn't know how to study. So that was another transformative moment. It changed everything. Grades went up, got much better, graduated. But at that time, Ross, I was so despondent mm-hmm. uh, and so physically exhausted from just trying to come up from the back, I pretty much gave up. And I said, you know what? I remember my husband, I was married already at that young age. And I remember my husband walking up to me and he says, now, sweetie, you got to go to medical school. And I told him, and I shared this with a lot of people. I said in my best George W. Bush voice, I said, read my lips. I will never, ever go to school again. I just felt so defeated by college. And I said to myself, you know what? I didn't beat all the odds. No one on my on my block where I grew up in Inglewood has gone to college. Mm-hmm. Most of them had not gone to high school. Only some had graduated from grammar school. I'm like, you did good. You can rest. And that's what I, that was the story I told myself so that I could cope with being too exhausted too beat up, too defeated to actually go any further. And what ended up happening is I was working at the Illinois Department of Public Health in the microbiology lab. And I always say that when something is meant to be, or if it's in the universe and you're reaching out to it, I tend to believe that that dream will circle back to you and you'll have the opportunity to act on it. God willing, Mm -hmm. you'll have the opportunity to act on it if you continue to have some level of attachment to that. Mind dream. over matter, doctor. Yes, absolutely. And so many occasions, the whole dream of medicine would continue to surface or resurface and bubble up to the top. Mm-hmm. And it was while I was at 
the Illinois Department of Public Health, working in the labs, that I had several other aha moments. I remember an infectious disease doctor called and he asked about a culture and what it was and what the identification was for a patient that was sick in the hospital. And I remember thinking, explaining to him, he said, well, how did you know? And I was explaining to him everything. And in my soul, in, in my very immature young self, not knowing any better, I was like, he's a doctor. If he's a doctor, I can be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, how silly and foolish I was. But thank God that they say God takes care of babies and fools. And <laughs> I did not understand that actually he was probably a very brilliant doctor to take the time to go outside of clinical medicine and reach over mm-hmm. to the bench. I didn't understand that. In my mind, I thought doctors knew everything. So why doesn't he know this? You know, because that was the perception I was coming from. Absolutely. And that, But yet, that was a moment that I feel God used to help propel me forward. See, you got a dumb doctor over there and he's doing it. You could do it too. <laughs> and it was honestly, it was one of those weird moments and several more things. I think the main thing that happened that really changed the course, though, is I met a mentor. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said, you have to see it in order to be it. But at the same time, someone needs to take your hand and show you. I always say when we talk about certain communities and many ethnicities, we'll see generations and generations of doctors. I always say, some, for example, in the Jewish families, you may see Kaplan and Kaplan and Kaplan on a building. And the same thing for some Indian families and other ethnicities, but it's not what you see many times in Black communities because oftentimes we're first generation. And it was that experience of someone helping to create legacy for me that allowed me to know that I can also be an extension of them. So Mm -hmm. I don't have a mother or father in medicine, but I have you. And because I have you, I now have a pathway as well. And I was connected to the CHAMPS program. And that honestly was my first opportunity to learn more about my pathway. And they actually were such a blessing. That's how I actually got the confidence. And one of the mentors that I was assigned, Dr. Reginald Jones, who has now passed, I remember him saying just a few words. He was a PhD, actually, Mm -hmm. uh, at the University of Chicago. And he looked at me and he said, daughter, call me daughter. And he says, if you want to be a doctor, you're going to be a doctor and we're going to help. And that was from the Champs organization. And that was the beginning, Rasa. He began to show me ways, work with me and help me kind of figure out what my pathway would be. And that's when I kind of refueled up. I was in the middle of getting my master's in public health and biostatistics and uh, epidemiology. Mm -hmm. And I kind of I had this renewed passion on how well I needed to do to do that, did that and finished strongly and eventually applied and got in. Applied uh, several times, actually. But uh, the third time I applied, I actually got in. I ended up going to uh, Rush Medical College. Oh, wow. Right in Chicago. Yes. And I have to tell you, this is a funny story. And I know for some who are who are not Christian, they may not you know, see this, but this was truly my story, though. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a young person, uh, you know, over in my 20s and I used to drive past the school and I had one baby already. And I used to always point to the school and say, hey, I would tell my youngest child that was in the car at the time, little infant. Hey, mommy's going to go there. I used to say, in Jesus' name, I'm going to that school. And Rasa, a school would come, 
the first day of class would come and I was not in the class. And I was like, oh my God, did Jesus forget his promise? What in the world is going on? (laughs) Then second year, I had another baby. And I remember telling that baby the same thing, same story. I would point at the school. I would say, yes. And I was trying to activate my faith that, you know what, like you said, mind over matter to point, believe, and then try to have actions that would take me there. Mm -hmm. But I say this to say, that a lot of times we can lose our faith and our confidence as we're trying to do something because I didn't get in that year either. And honestly, Rasa, that is when I almost walked away. Mm-hmm. I almost completely walked away. And I remember my husband telling me, he says, well, sweetie, the reason why you're not in is not because you're not great, but you have to retake the MCAT. You've got to do it. And I didn't want to face that, but I went and I retook the MCAT And I did really well. Almost walked out on that test as well. (laughs) Almost walked out. I mean, it would have changed everything. I'm so glad I stayed. But I stayed. I did well. I applied that time. Mm -hmm. And when all the ducks were in order, which is one of the things I work with the I'm Able Foundation kids to know so that they won't kind of walk on foolishness. That was foolish. If you want to call it faith, it was more foolishness. You know, I just didn't understand. I just wanted something so badly. And I thought then... That if I could just believe it, I could visualize it and make it happen. But it takes so much more than that. And that's why mentors are so important. That's one piece of it, but it's not all of it. You have to believe it, but then there's a lot of work that goes behind it. And that's what we do with I Mabel Foundation. But that's when I applied. I got in and I actually started at Rush Medical College with three children under the age of three. I had a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a six-month-old baby day one of medical school at Rush. And it was honestly a beautiful experience uh, that I had at Rush. Everything went smoothly. I graduated four years later, did my residency at University of Illinois in internal medicine and pediatrics. I also loved that. And I knew that I was really destined and called to medicine. And I'm just thankful, you know, for everything hard, for everything easy, for everything that happened. I've never been more convinced that this was a work that I was supposed to do. And for me, even though a lot of, you know, you hear a lot of young people talk about how challenging, you know, you're going on the floors, that's supposed to be hard. Residency mm-hmm. is supposed to be hard. And But for me, Rasa, everything to me just increasingly got better because I was doing what I was called to do. Yeah, you know, when you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life, right? Absolutely. And so can you tell our listeners a little bit about your current position with the correction facility? Yeah. So been many years in in medicine now, over 23 years plus. And currently I work as the deputy chief of health services for the Illinois Department of Corrections. And my work is largely administrative, uh, but our job is to try to improve the quality of health care. And we know that there are some challenges in the correctional health care environment. Funding is never... uh, as generous and as liberal as we would like, but we're doing our best to create aspirational health care system. We have a way to go, but some of the things that we are working on now that had not been done in the state of Illinois is on our transgender health initiatives, along with many other fascinating programs. We'll be building a geriatrics program, so mm-hmm. lots of things that are very definitely needed Yeah, absolutely. I think our prisoner population is often very overlooked, stigmatized. They are an underserved community. So it's fantastic that you're doing this work to help bring healthcare, which is a human right. Yes, it is. To these people. 
So you also mentioned that you have a master's of public health. What was the reason for you to pursue that MPH? And how do you feel that you applied this degree to the work that you do now? To be honest, the real reason, which I wouldn't recommend this pathway for students now, because honestly, I think things are a lot more competitive than they even were then. But I actually used the master's in public health degree because I felt like it would be helpful in medicine, Mm -hmm. uh, which of course it is. But also I believe that I needed another way to prove to people that I can actually do it so that, you know, I can do this work. So what is a paramedical type of field where I can demonstrate a level of competence? So Mm -hmm. that's the main reason why I got my master's in public health. So I did a little different than a lot of people. Some people get their master's in public health after they finish their MD degree and they're using it. So they can actually combine a clinical or medical career with a career in public health. Sure. But I mean, I think that epidemiology and biostatistics is super important in terms of the work that we do every day as physician scientists. Yeah. And especially your role in the correctional facility. Again, this is public health issue if this entire population is being neglected. So I could definitely see how that could come of use. So when you were talking about what led you to your pursuit of medicine, there was a lot of thoughts in my head going around. And I think you hit on a few really key points. One, you know, I do serve on the executive admissions committee at Stritch. And so I see a lot of applicants come through their applications And you're right. I mean, when we look at applications of Black applicants, they are not typically, they don't list their parents as physicians. They don't come from a physician household. That's definitely the case still. Yes, it hasn't changed much at all. Absolutely not, you know, and we are in a shortage of especially male Black physicians, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better by the year. And I think the other couple of things that you mentioned is, and I know that there are many studies on this, and of course, this was used I want to say back in the day, but to be frank, it's still used now as a way to demean Black people as lesser, that they're not as intelligent. And this really comes from the fact that, like you, a lot of Black individuals are still being raised in these communities that have very poor education systems. So you're really starting so much farther behind than your white counterparts. Yes. And then... The other aspect that you're really lacking, like you said, is mentorship. Like if you don't know how to study, you don't know how to prioritize your time, you don't know which checkboxes to tick. I can understand why you were so exhausted by the end of your undergrad. And I can imagine how tiring it must be to not only have to keep up with the classes, but you have to figure out first how to manage and how to study and how how to do all these things that for other people, it's just been told, right? So it's just so much more effort that you have to put in. And again, not because your intelligence is any different. It's just because you don't have the resources available to you. And so I think this really leads into probably why your passion for the I Am Evil Foundation and your work that you do with it. So I want to dive right into it. And so can you describe the mission of the foundation and what led you to start this wonderful organization? Yeah, thank you so much. First of all, as I look back and I was listening to you kind of summarize many of my feelings, I often think back, Rasa, on how I wish that Dr. Conway today could meet Sweetie Conway from that time when I graduated from college and hug her and encourage her and tell her that it's okay 
you're not less than. And I understand you're tired. And if you have to take a break, take a break, Mm -hmm. but don't go away. Because I was very fortunate to be able to be here today, but so many others are tired like I was. You mentioned substandard education and resource poor schools. When you go to college, you're actually competing with kids who took physics in high school or took calculus in high school. I never saw physics until I got into college. Many times kids who are taking uh, physics in college is a third time. They took it once, then they took advanced placement, then now they're taking it again in college and then multiply that by all of the other classes. And it has a way of killing your confidence. Mm -hmm. What happened for me that helps me now address all of those things that are still affecting kids today? Because you talked about the fact that it hasn't changed even looking at your applicants and your applicant pool. And that's absolutely factual. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we know for a fact that there are fewer Black men that were applying to medical school in 2014 than there were in 1978. How could these things be? Uh, We always say that we're in a post-racial society, but we're not. There are still systems of systemic racial bias, uh, financial, socioeconomic disadvantages that are selectively impacting certain communities, most likely, again, because of systemic racism as well. These things are still having an impact on our community. And it's evident in the fact that nothing much has changed. Right. And we know the statistics. 13% of U.S. African-Americans is about, we represent about 13% of the population and still only four to 5% of the practice and physicians. When we talk about how can you be what you cannot see, it is important that you don't just have mentoring organizations that are trying to pull this one up and that one up. We actually need a movement that creates people professional communities, because Mm -hmm. the difference is a lot of young people that are not growing up in Inglewood, but growing up in Winneka are growing up around doctors. Their mothers are doctors. Their uncle is a doctor. The person down the street is a doctor. They go to a doctor. They can shadow with the doctor because they are in a community that has the things that they need within the community, Mm -hmm. people that look like them. So it is a foregone conclusion. I've talked to a lot of the young people in I Am Able Foundation and even some of my peers who've grown up in Africa and grown up in Caribbean nations that are mostly Black. They don't grow up with the same bias and feeling, or I should say self-stigmatization. They don't grow up with that because they grow up looking at Black people doing things that they want to do as well. Right. So I knew all of this in my head, but I had not ever really realized how it was going to be important for me to play an active role in changing this narrative until the murder of one of my cousins to Southside gun violence. That was the changing, pivotal moment for me. It was Mother's Day when I got the call. And I've told this story many times before, but my youngest son had picked up family members from the South Side, young people who were spending Mother's Day with me mm-hmm. while I'm studying for boards. And I always say that has to resonate with someone. The fact that someone would rather spend Mother's Day with someone else's mother. Mm -hmm. It is the tale of two cities, I always tell people. We take for granted how blessed we are when we have parents that are supporting us. But here we are, there's other people who are not living that reality. And I remember my son went and picked up some of my cousins, brought them to spend Mother's Day with us. And as my son was going to drop them back off and head back to Purdue, because he was still in college, He forgot his wallet 
And here comes the systemic systems of racism. He didn't want to be driving while black. He knew better. He's like, I can't be without my wallet for the next week, two weeks, three weeks, riding around in West Lafayette and even driving in and out of Chicago. I got to go back. So he came back to get his wallet. And it turned out to be a very important move because in the time that it took for him to turn around and head back to drop off all the kids at the house, flurry of calls came in. And when I finally answered the phone, when I received the call, I could only hear screaming, crying in the background because my son and the kids in the car had just missed the shooting. They had missed it by minutes because they returned and came back. Oh, I just got chills down my body. I've heard this story before, but my God, wow. Yeah, and it was one of those moments that changed your life. He's 15. And one of the things that also hit me, Rasa, is all weekend long, and you know, because you study so hard for everything, your boards and everything, we are so fixated on not failing boards. Like that's important. And it don't change. <laughs> you know, even when you get older, you got to pass your, your, if your medicine is your internal medicine boards, if you do some sort of fellowship, you got to pass those boards mm-hmm. and you don't ever feel comfortable about it either, by the way. So don't think that you're going to feel good about it. It's never over. And in fact, I got one more to do. <laughs> not, another recertification before I think I'll uh, hang up my shingle. And I remember studying, studying, studying for my recertification boards. And one of the little boys just kept ringing my phone and ringing my phone. I said, oh, that's my little baby cousin. I, I don't have time for him. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't answer the call. And I've never forgotten just the proverbial or metaphorical thought of not answering your call. Mm-hmm. because that was a life-changing moment for him because though he escaped being killed, he was there and it changed his entire life. We brought this kid to stay with us and because he wouldn't be safe where he was. And remember, he didn't want to be there. He was drawn to not be there, but I wouldn't answer the call because I'm busy, right? I'm studying for boards. It's Mother's Day. You missed the ride when my son came. So <laughs> I, you, you missed your ride. I don't have time right now. I, I got to pass. And it was very important that I passed because I just switched jobs too. And you can never start a new job with your board certifications not intact. So I just switched jobs and I'm like, okay, I've already quit the old job. I'm going to the new job and I don't have my board certification intact. I can't be playing with people right now. That's what I was thinking. But the message that keeps drilling in my head is that I didn't answer the call. Mm -hmm. This young boy comes to stay with us for the next six months. He goes back to school on the south side of Chicago. And the next call I get is that he is in the hospital and he has been shot. He was an accidental victim, an unintended victim. And he was walking to the bus to go home. And the moment that resonates with me most is when I walked into University of Chicago. It was then called Weiler's Children's Hospital. And he reached to me with the one hand that worked because at that point he was paralyzed and he had no movement on the left and none in his lower extremities. And he just reached out to me with tears in his eyes. He was 14 years old. My God. And when I went to touch him and hold his hand, we just held hands because that's all we had. And I was really close to him. Very, very close to him. Very special kid. And that was the second moment. It's like 
you only get a couple of moments, you know, where you keep hearing these messages. Mm -hmm. And after a while, something ought to be clear. And it became clear to me that this is a forgotten community. This is a forgotten generation. They are mentorless. They feel hopeless. And when you feel hopeless, you can do anything because life doesn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. And I had a very pivotal conversation with him. And I asked him, I said, why are these kids doing this? And he says, auntie, it's because most of the kids look at the other kids as, you know, they're ops. And I said, what's that? And he says, you know, ops, you know, he used a word to define a word. So I'm not going <laughs> to do that. And he said, you know, like PlayStation, ops, you know, operatives. It was in that moment that another light bulb went off, if you will. And it became clear to me that what young men are doing who are growing up in these communities is in order to be able to hurt others, they dehumanize them mm-hmm. and they become something other than a person. And that's when the whole notion of understanding that these kids don't understand that this is your brother. You're mm-hmm. actually responsible for your brother. So it's be taking care of your brother. And that's when the whole concept of I Am Able Foundation was birthed in my heart. And of course, eventually it became a real entity. When we started I Am Able Foundation, it was somewhat of a call and response in my mind. What am I going to do? Is it going to be a response to violence? Would it be violence prevention? And I thought all of that is important. And then I went back to the very thing you and I talked about, Rasa. In order for things to truly change, the narrative of the entire community has to change. Mm -hmm. It's not just about individuals that get a chance to make it out, so to speak, like me. But it's about more people like me who remain a part of this interior community. And then now, as these kids reach out, they're still in the community. Most of these kids live in Chicago Mm -hmm. and go to Chicago area schools. But imagine what it would look like when these kids who live in Chicago, go to Chicago area schools, go to college, and then ultimately go to medical school. And they're still in the community. This is how we can rebirth and change the narrative of our communities. And I thought, you know what? That's what I can do. That's where my gifts are. I can teach young people about what it really means to be a healer because I really took medicine serious. My goal, and one thing that we didn't talk about, but this is very true in some of the studies that you probably looked at, some of the talk and some of the things that we now know is that Black doctors almost uniformly go back to practice in the communities that they came from. You often hear them say that uh, when they say, well, I just want to go back, and they do. It's been proven that, you know, upwards of 90 plus plus percent of black doctors go back into their communities to serve and to change. I thought, Rasa, that I would just do that and that would be good. Mm -hmm. I was so excited about the work that I would be doing on the West Side. The young kids would come in and they would see me and it'd be, hey, Dr. Conway. And the mothers would be so happy to see me because finally they see somebody that looks like them. Barriers just wash away. They come in and sometimes they forget to say Dr. Conway. It's like, girl, you won't believe. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, Dr. Conway. (laughs) Because a million barriers go away because what's understood doesn't have to be stated. When Mm -hmm. you walk in and I automatically understand you, my verbal cues, the things that I say, and the things that I don't say. Mm-hmm. I was good at that. So I thought to myself, that's what I can impart. I can impart to them the gift of healing, the gift of listening, the gift of compassionate bedside manner. 
And then I can also help prepare them so that they cannot necessarily go through the things that I went through. Because that long pathway that I took oftentimes takes you completely off the path and you never make it back. I think that for every, I don't know the number, but for every kid that was like me, there has to be countless others that never navigated back to the path. And my goal is to show kids early on from high school age, even younger in some of our programs, but in terms of the mentoring program, to show these young people that yes, you can, yes, you can, yes, you can, and I'm going to help you. And some of these other people behind me, we're going to show you. We're creating legacy by proxy. So your mother and father are not doctors. That's okay. Your auntie, Dr. Conway, I'm your doctor. And I'm going to show you what it looks like. And then now what has happened, the community has grown in such a beautiful way that a lot of the physicians are black and brown, but a lot of the physicians who really care are not black and brown. It's multiracial now. People are coming from all over and saying, you know what? I'm not black, but can I help? I care. And I'm like, you better believe it. I need you. You know why I need you. We only make up 4%. It's not even enough of us. Come in and help. And they're doing that. And what started with a program of just 30 kids the first year has now blossomed to a program where we take over 100 mentees per year, plus all of the ancillary programs that we do out in the community has just really changed everything. It's just really changed everything. And I'm just so incredibly thankful. We partnered with Northwestern and Rasa, the kind of things that we're doing is just groundbreaking. Right now we have MCAT classes going. We have MCAT summer classes. We had one this summer where the kids got a stipend. Why? Not because we're paying them to study, but because these kids can't afford to not work. Mm -hmm. And we do know that standardized tests are tied to parental income. Many people can study. Their parents are like, hey, you don't need to work. You come stay home with me. You go kick the MCAT's butt, apply, then you can move on with your dream. But a lot of our kids don't have that opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people of color, they have to work, not just because they don't have that support from their family. They actually have to contribute to their family. right? Exactly. Exactly. And let alone, you know, when you look at all these Kaplan prep courses, they can't afford that. So, of no. course, people from dual physician households, not even dual, you know, people from middle class families who have parents with stable jobs who are willing to invest in their children because they can. Because they can, yeah. Of course, they are ahead. There's no way to compete with something like that. So you offering all of this to the community is just amazing. Well, you know what? We started off with our program being very focused on lots of support. I think you've heard about a lot of the things that we do. We've taken kids to Cuba. We've had Mm -hmm. programs that are international in Costa Rica. Kids have gone to Haiti. And those were good things. We do academic advising. We have annual conferences, which you're going to help me with the next one. (laughs) You know, and they're tremendous activities and events that are very important. But I call them, as one doctor described to me, they're Mm one-offs. You know, they're just like an experience. But then it began to hit me that admissions committees, I don't care where they are, holistic admissions doesn't really start until after you hit a certain threshold. Mm -hmm. And we just got to keep it real. And I think what happened is I began to realize that holistic admissions is great. You begin to look at the person, but they have to reach that threshold first. And so I think that is how we end up reshaping what we do. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we do, which I think is super important, 
and I will always find the value of this, is our clinical programming. Our clinical program creates what we call legacy by proxy. Kids have to know that they can actually do this. They want to feel like they're in the role of doctor. So I think that's important. That goes with our year-long program that starts off with the first year where we teach history taken. By the end of the year, the kids participate in a mock clinical, which is basically synonymous with the OSCEs or the Observed Structured Clinical Exam, they do that. And we have doctors who are standardized patients and they become the doctors. They walk in with their white coats. Hi, I'm Dr. Conway. I'd like to introduce myself to you and what seems to be the trouble. And it's an amazing experience. The end of year experience is just one of those life-changing moments where it kind of solidifies, yep, I can do this. And I just did it. Mm-hmm. I finished my first interview all by myself. So that we love and we continue to do. And then the kids go on and they continue with mostly Northwestern faculty with our advanced curriculums. Kids can spend what we call semesters. They can do six months of cardiology, six months of GI. And why do we do that one, Rasa? I'll tell you what. I was rounding at the VA one day and this really smart, bright, and very kind Indian young man, we were on the rounds and he said, hey, Dr. Conway, would you like me to pull up the CT scan and show it to the medical student? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, sure. And it was, you know, in the middle of the case, he pulls it up and he said, okay, so this is how you orientate yourself to the film only in two dimensions, but you got to imagine it this way. The feet are here, the head is back there. And he started beginning to show them all about it right here. There's this lesion, that lesion. And it was just wonderful the way he did it. So once he was done and all the kids were gone, I called him back in the room. I said, hey, come here for a second. And he came back. He said, yes, Dr. Conway. Um, This was over at Loyola VA Hines. I said, you know, you've been a doctor for two weeks. How do you know all of this? And he tells me, he laughed. And he was also a prelim student that was going into radiology. And he says, well, you know, Dr. Conway, my uncle is a radiologist. He's an interventional radiologist. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do. So I've been studying with him and sitting in and looking at films for the past five years. Wow. Hit me like a ton of bricks. He seems so smart, right? Mm-hmm. He, he was smart, but he had opportunity. Yeah. These things change the trajectory of people's lives, the people that they can meet and who they can talk to. So that is why we created these experiences that are filled with people who care, that are, like I said, many of them, most of them are not Black. Some of them uh, that teach in the advanced curriculum at Northwestern, they're from all ethnicities, but they have truly, they understand the very things that you described earlier. And they understand that if we as a society are going to change the community, then I, as a person, have got to do my part to help those who need the most help, who can't get the help themselves. And so that is our clinical uh, program, but also uh, God has really blessed us. And we've had summer clinical programs. We said our first program, I'm hoping maybe we could do this at the Heinz VA. We had our first summer clinical immersion program at the Jesse Brown VA, eight full weeks of clinical exposure, even rounding on the floor, quality improvement projects, as well as preventative health projects. Um, The kids were crying at the end. They had a transformative experience. And finally, the thing that really hit me, which I started but didn't finish, 
was we talked about the fact you're not going to get into medical school with all your great deeds and all the wonderful stuff you did. And yeah, yeah, we know that you could be a doctor. you got to show them the numbers. Mm-hmm. And we realized that our kids, for many reasons, were having good grades in school, some of them, but not good standardized test scores. So we started our MCAT prep program that we did this summer. And right now we have nine kids that are enrolled in the fall one, and they'll be taking it in April. So we're trying to do the real work that's going to help these kids get in, do well, come back out, retire me so I can go sit down <laughs> somewhere and then change the community. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, a few things again that I think just really resonated with me looking at the metrics. I know sometimes even those of us who are more fortunate to be in positions to study, we kind of maybe look at admissions, like why are they requiring these high grades of me and why can't I get in, you know? But I do think that being on the other side of it and seeing it as if a person is not academically prepared, you're really doing them a disservice because medical education is so long, so hard and so expensive that if at the end of it, they cannot get a job being a physician, you are doing them a disservice by admitting them to your medical school. I know at Loyola, we're limited in the resources that we have. So a lot of times when we discuss applicants, we have to look at, are we able to support this applicant? If they are not academically where the majority of the class is, is the support that we have adequate for them? I agree. And so there's two things that I say with that. First of all, there's a fine line at what point is that? Mm -hmm. And I think we do have to look at statistical numbers in order to find out what are the numbers? Do we all need to be all the way over here? Are these the people going to make the best doctors? Are some of these people who are slightly under the mean, will they also be good doctors? And will they have a higher than likely probability of passing USMLE and going on and doing okay? And those are the nuanced questions we have to ask. But to your point, I 100% agree. And for that reason, I tell my students who have done poorly and they were crying on the MCAT, I'm the first dose of real love and what you would call (laughs) tough love that they get. If they're looking for it straight and no chaser, they get it from Dr. Conway. (laughs) I have told students, please do not apply. You are not ready. Mm -hmm. Not that you can't be a good doctor. I have no doubt that you could be a good doctor, but whatever the deficiencies are, be it you don't know how to tackle standardized tests yet, be it you're lacking a certain amount of content because Mm -hmm. you got a slower start. It doesn't matter what the reason is. Let's fix that now. And some of our kids who have not done so well on their MCAT and they were crying and, you know, they didn't do well when they took it in August. I says, look, This is actually a praise break. Hallelujah moment. And they're like, how? I said, because look, now you got the next six months to fix this. You do not want something to get in on a Hail Mary and you're always a day late, dollar short. It's frustrating. It's hard. Medical school is going to be hard no matter how talented and how smart you are. Give yourself the best advantage. Figure out where the glitches are because probably you don't know how to read standardized tests. I don't know why they make these tests so stupid. These oh, no kids, one knows. Yeah, these kids will go and I've got kids that have 3.5, 3.6, 3.7 GPAs from top and big 10 schools. So we know that they have the intelligence. So they may not have a content problem, but they still have to pass these standardized boards. So if that means you need more time just to know how to study the test, 
then that is what we do. But here's my thing that I'm asking is as academic community, you can't support the individual student who is going to take up so many resources. They need so much more help and so much more investment individually. But how about support the pipelines? Mm -hmm. It is important that the gatekeepers of academia actually step in and say, you know what? We can't at Northwestern, our average is 520 on the MCAT. So they're not likely going to take someone that's 499. It's just not going to happen no matter how talented they are. And they're going to be unapologetic about it. And I'm okay with that Mm -hmm. because they're upfront and they're letting you know. But what I would prefer is what they're doing even right now is, but you know what, Lamenta, we're going to help you get these kids to score well on their MCAT because they have to understand how to approach standardized tests. We're going to help you tutor some of these kids or provide the resources. And this is what I am praying, asking. And that's what a lot of my work is too, reaching out to academia and saying, hey, can you help make an investment in the younger kids? Because you know that their opportunities for education are not quite equal. Can you help us with that? Yeah. Because I do think that there is a duty. It should be a moral duty, I feel, for the institutions to say, what can we do to help fix it? Even if it's something that applies to pre-matric programs, because they think, you know what, there's some kids that are so close, Rasa, that maybe that's all they need. Mm -hmm. So you can also help with the underrepresented population by creating opportunities. But I would say even investing in pipelines that start at a younger age, I think we'll get more bang for our buck if we invest in programs like I Am Able Foundation and help these kids with a strategic plan that gets them from A to Z. Yeah, I could not agree more. And another thing that you had mentioned, aside from, you know, the wonderful clinical opportunities that you offer and allowing these kids to see themselves in the shoes of the physician, I think perhaps a more important thing you provide that goes back to kind of your story And when you were exhausted from college and you told your husband, no way, I am reading my lips. I'm not going to medical school. (laughs) Went to two more schools after that. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, But you had his support and his encouragement and the support of your family. And like you said, just like with your cousin who didn't want to spend Mother's Day at home, a lot of these kids don't have that support. And I think that's the most important thing that you give is this community who continues to encourage them. To continue to uplift them and to tell them that they can do it, they are good enough, offer mentorship of how to get there. But again, just kind of when they're feeling down, when they're feeling exhausted, when they feel like they want to give up because maybe there's an easier path, you continue to encourage them. And I think that's really the key of this foundation. You couldn't have said it better. We're going to put you on the billboard. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. We consider ourselves a mentoring community. Mm -hmm. I like to think that the physicians are a blessing to one another. We help one another, but we create a community. And I think that's the key. Kids are now spending time with doctors and they don't have to be intimidated by them anymore. Doctors are giving them their telephone number. These doctors are laughing with them. These doctors are coming to the Hawaiian luau. And spending time with them, playing games with them, going to, we do fun stuff too. So Mm -hmm. it is really meant to be a holistic environment where the kids and the doctors, the medical students as well. So I definitely encourage, you know, Loyola medical students to get involved and become a mentor. Once a year, we actually match kids with Mm -hmm. their own medical student mentor as well as physician mentor. 
And it's always a struggle because we can only take in as much kids as we can partner. And I always feel like we have the opportunity to be a blessing to the medical student. I can't tell you how many medical students I have encouraged, talked off the ledge, hugged and loved and Mm -hmm. just called just to check on them to make sure they're okay. Even when they were really down. And I've even fussed at a few because I said, hey, you kept me on red. And I know you saw my text. (laughs) Don't do that to Dr. Conway. That ain't nice. And they apologize. (laughs) But it's because the pressure of medical school is so hard. So to your point, we actually do have to make sure that we're training up and preparing them to be the best version of themselves before they walk in the door because they're about to behave. Mm -hmm. Not because anyone is trying to be mean to them. It's just the way the process is designed. So we want them to be successful because it's going to get tough. Yeah, absolutely. So what has been the hardest part of starting the foundation? What's the hardest part of keeping it alive and well? The hardest part is that I need an actual another Dr. Conway, one that can go (laughs) and work and make some money (laughs) uh, while the other one runs I Am Able Foundation. Because I Am Able Foundation is a labor of love that probably Mm -hmm. takes me anywhere to 40 to 60 hours a week. That's the hardest part. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's getting easier, but only easier in the sense of the vision and the mission is better clarified. Mm -hmm. But the hard and the challenging part is the funding. Yeah. So it takes a lot. I'm constantly applying for grants so that I can be. And then, you know, you need people that can write up your outcomes and things like that. Yeah. And you need people, you got to coordinate the doctors that's going to do the teaching, coordinating the conferences. It really and truly is several full-time jobs. I would say the financing and funding and just the time. I think the other hard part, which is this is the part that got easier. Now that people know who we are, now everybody wants to help. Mm-hmm. And not everybody, like we have too much help. So don't get it twisted. If you're out there and you want to help, we can use you. But before it was really hard and it was very frustrating, Rasa, because I thought that every black doctor and every Latino doctor would automatically want to help. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked to find out that they didn't. And I think what I've learned is a couple of things. People who are on different parts of their journey, and I just have to accept that. Mm-hmm. I didn't accept it at first. I was really upset because I thought that this was such an important mission. I didn't understand how somebody who's been in these shoes couldn't understand how important. In fact, absolutely almost mandatory, like this is serious, that you Mm -hmm. should definitely Mm -hmm. do this. Like I shouldn't even have to ask you to do this. But what I've learned is that everyone is in a different place. I've also learned that not all mentors are created equal. Mm -hmm. And if you're that resistant, you may have some issues I need to leave you on over there. So there's a lot that I really have learned And I have found that in time, I think I wanted things to happen quicker because I thought it was so important, thought the message was so critical, but I learned that I had to hurry up and wait, that everything is in God's perfect timing and I can't change nothing, no way. So I'm just going to have to wait. And to my surprise, as you try to continue to do the right thing, God continued to unfold this vision. And the way I look at it, Rasa, this has never been for Dr. Conway. This has always been for the people, yeah. always been for the community. And I know my heart and I think people know that too. And I think that people see that and they're pouring into it now. And I'm just waiting for the next NIH fund and then <laughs> we might be okay. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so important. And hopefully as you continue to give back, more people rise with you. And again, as you're mentoring, hopefully every year after year, we build this 
larger communities so that not so much has to fall on one person. And with admissions, we discussed this with wanting to recruit people of color because we do want a diverse class. And we think it's important and a worthwhile cause to invest in positions of color. But everyone's scrambling over the same people, though, Rasa. There are hundreds of thousands of kids who have the talent that hasn't been developed. And a lot of the institutions want to take the easy way without the work. Institutions like Loyola or Rush, which are great institutions, will have to scramble for the same people that Northwestern and yeah. University of Chicago are going yeah, to. Exactly. Get. And kids are just simply going to weigh it out and they're going to look at financial aid and then they're going to decide, okay, I may go to Loyola or Rush because they'll offer me some money, but they may want to go to Northwestern because that has the name and the recognition that they were looking for. Have you so, been sitting in on our admissions meeting? <laughs> that's what it sounds like. <laughs> you know, and it's just honestly, Rasa, it's common sense. And I think rather than spinning on this hamster wheel, all of academia needs to just recognize that instead of going after the same people that basically it's all free and easy and clean Mm -hmm. and packed up nicely in a bowl, how about us invest in the younger kids? And I really invest, not the one-offs. You remember we talked about that, not the one-offs. Even we have one-offs, which I think are important because certain events are special. But Mm -hmm. no, I'm talking about down in the dirt, getting down there and actually truly preparing kids And it's on a longitudinal basis. So that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that one day when academia is looking for something to fund Mm -hmm. or something to co-create, you've got the resources, you got biochemists, you have scientists that are right there in the hospital Mm -hmm. or in the academic uh, institution, the medical school. It'd be lovely to gather some of those people and utilize them to help with programming things. We have to be creative, but that's why we build a program. Absolutely. Not cherry picking all of the great black kids whose parents were doctors or maybe not, but they somehow maybe figured it out and then they all landed on your doorstep. That's the easy way. It's going to take more work than that if we can. I agree. So we're coming up short on time, I know, but I do have a few more questions for you. So what is your hope for the future of I Am Able? Really, that my young people that we are mentoring now, that they will become the next generation of healthcare heroes, Mm -hmm. that they will truly work from a framework of healing, true healing, that understands the connection from the social determinants of health and the connection of someone's physical state, that the two cannot be separated. Mm -hmm. Those are the kind of doctors that we're looking to create. I want them to serve. And then I want them to get a seat at the table Mm -hmm. because when you're not at the table, you're on the menu. You have to be in a position in my space. I need you to come take my chair while Mm -hmm. I sit back and watch you and coach you. And then I need you to go into policy. And then I need somebody to go down there to the legislature and Congress and lobby for the kids and to lobby for changes in terms of residencies, increasing yeah. the numbers, because it doesn't have to be as hard as it is. I understand right. it's hard, but it could be better. There's some things that we can do better. My vision for I Am Able Foundation is to see these kids do that, but also return to the community mm-hmm. and each one teach one, each one reach one. That's what I want to see. Amen. From your lips to God's ears. Amen. <laughs> So what advice would you give to those early in their medical journey who are interested in starting maybe a similar nonprofit? I would say 
recognize that it won't come easy. Mm -hmm. If you really believe and you've been given a vision that you feel that is important, that is yours to run with, run with the vision. Um, I know a lot of millennials because they're really bright and a lot of great traits of millennials. But one of the things that millennials maybe struggle with is waiting. Mm-hmm. Even I don't wait very well either. So I can definitely relate. I think you have to understand that things won't just unveil. You know, a lot of times we imagine people who do so well with their portfolios, they make tons of money, they have startup companies and everything seems to go well. Well, guess what? Sometimes people don't care about the thing that you're doing. They don't know to care about it. So sometimes finding your people is not easy. I know that my people existed out there, but believe it or not, Rasa, sometimes it's almost like you ever heard the expression, you have to have money to get money. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing, which sounds really silly, but it's a catch-22, but it's the same thing when you're trying to build something. It has to look like it's something. It has to actually be something before somebody even cares about it to contribute to it, which right. seems unfair, but that's what they should expect. And if that's the vision that you really have, then just understand it's going to take some patience. It's going to take some time. I would definitely say, don't worry about the people who don't care that you thought would be perfect. Mm -hmm. Because I have learned if there's never been a lesson that I've really learned. Some of the doctors that I begged to help me that kept saying they were coming and wouldn't come. I was better off because it didn't come. Because if they did that to me, they won't treat my kids right. So just understand some people who are not with you don't belong with you. They're part of your journey that they've been a part of so far. That might be it. Maybe they have nothing else for you, but God will send the people to you that are going to help make your vision come to pass. So you just got to keep it and you got to work it. Wow. Amazing advice. And so where can folks go to support you? I am able and maybe get involved with the foundation. So if you want to get involved with the foundation, which I hope they medical students at Loyola, Loyola kids, I'm looking at y'all. Y'all come on, <laughs> come on over here and help Dr. Conway. Go to I am able, and that's spelled A-B-E-L. So don't look for A-B-L-E. That's wrong. It's www.iamabel.org. On the website, you'll see all of the upcoming activities and things like that. You'll also be able to, if you're interested in mentoring, you can sign up to do that. Just understand that we won't be matching again until August. So we still want you in the database so we can start pulling people together. We match once a year in a wonderful celebration for our mentees and mentors. And there's just lots to do. Also, if any of the medical students are interested in joining Saturday Morning Professor, that's where legacy happens, where we're teaching clinical skills early on. If you ever just want to sit in, feel free to join us because chances are the things that we teach in many of the first and second year students have not learned yet. Right. So I think that you'll find it fun and it's an opportunity to also for medical students to connect to other doctors that they don't know, like doctors at Northwestern or wherever they may be. Uh, hailing from when they come to support us in our lecture series. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time this evening. I really appreciate you taking the time to tell us about the foundation. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was a pleasure talking with you also, Rasa. And I do hope that uh, a lot of the young people will come to our Chicago Health and Medical Career Citywide Student Conference in the spring. And we'll have more information on that shortly. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. 
To support us, go to MedicusPodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.